Let's turn back over to Exodus chapter 33, and I want to read these verses again. This is what I've been talking about all weekend long. In verse 13, Moses said, Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way, that I might know thee and find grace in thy sight. Moses wanted to know God. And I spent a lot of time emphasizing how that this really is the heart of everything is we have to know God, not know about him, but know him personally for ourselves, have an intimate personal relationship. And the way we come to know God is by his actions. That's how we know God is by the way that he acts. And this is what the Bible is. The Bible is a record of the actions of God. And yet a lot of people have misinterpreted and misunderstood. To most people, the old covenant is just uh, ancient history and the new covenant is more modern history, but they're all the same thing. And yet the Bible says that there is a complete difference. Man, the old covenant and the new covenant don't fit. That's the exact illustration that Jesus used when he was talking about that you can't take a new patch and put it on an old garment because when you wash it, the patch will shrink and it'll tear the the garment that you sewed it on. He's talking about you can't take this new covenant and attach it to the old covenant is the context of what he's talking about. They're incompatible. It's not that the old covenant was wrong. It was just that it was incomplete. Nobody could keep the old covenant. And so the Lord made a new covenant. Man, I wish to add, if, if I get down this road, I won't get to where I'm going. So I'm not going to do it. But you go look up Hebrews 7 and 8. And it talks about that that old covenant is disannulled. It is ready to vanish away. God made a better covenant established upon better promises. And we now have a different relationship. If you are trying to relate to God based on the old covenant, you're missing the benefits and the glory of the New Testament. And sad to say, most Christians just mix it all together. And because of it, it gives a confusing, conflicting impression of God. And so I've been trying to change some of this. One of the first things I talked about is that God does not control every single thing that happens to you. This teaching on the sovereignty of God as taught in the majority of churches, I believe is the worst doctrine in the body of Christ today because it blames God for every demonic bad thing that happens and God controls it. He either does it directly or he allows it to happen. And that is incorrect. And that's what I taught on on Thursday night. And then on uh, Friday morning, I taught about that even though God doesn't control everything, it's a smart decision for us to totally yield to God and let him control our life. And we talked about that, that that is a way of God. He doesn't force himself upon you. You have to choose it. You have to voluntarily submit unto him. And then last night I began to start trying to harmonize the harshness and the wrath of the old covenant with the mercy that you see in the new covenant. Man, I wish I had time to go back through all that because I've got about six or seven hours of teaching that cover the one thing that I tried to deal with in one hour last night. And there's just so much more that I wasn't able to get to. I've got a book or a a tape set on entitled The True Nature of God that will go into more detail. And, And you need to get hold of that because that really does explain why the harshness and the wrath of the old covenant versus the mercy of the new covenant. There is a major, major difference And if you don't understand that, it's going to give you a skewed impression of God 
and who he is. And you're going to wonder, is he the God of the old covenant today or is he the God of the new covenant? Is he about to judge me or is he going to get, give mercy to me? It makes you wonder if God is schizophrenic, but the true nature of God is just love. First John chapter four, verse eight, look over in Deuteronomy chapter 32. And I want to start there today. And again, Deuteronomy was written by Moses and it was the day before he went up unto Mount Nebo and was gathered unto the Lord. And he basically is just recounting all of the things that happened to the Jews and sharing these revelations that God gave him about the way of God. He asked to know the way of God and God taught him. And here he is saying all of these things about God and who he was. And so um, let me just drop down to verse four. Am I in the right spot? That's not the one I wanted. Oh, here it is. You got to look at verse four. I was looking at verse five. It says, he is the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are judgment of God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. Now, this is the man who asked to know the way of the Lord. God taught him. And here is part of what he said. He said, his work is perfect for all his ways are judgment. God is a God of judgment or a God of justice, a God of truth and without iniquity. And you could take a lot of scriptures to make this same point, but like Psalms chapter 89, verse 34, he said, my covenant will I not break nor alter the thing that has gone forth out of my lips. This is one of the truths of God about his character, about his nature that God never lies. It's impossible for God to lie. Hebrews chapter six says that in other places. God cannot lie. When God says something, it's a covenant. Psalms 89, 34. It's a covenant and he won't break it. Now this is a little hard for people to grab hold of because we aren't like that. And nobody we know is like that. We say things all of the time. And if it turns out that what we said uh, works to our detriment. Well, then we just, you know, well, uh, you know, I didn't mean that. I'm sorry. This is what I really meant. And we change. There's a scripture. I'd have to look up the verse right now, but it says a godly man will swear to his own hurt and change not a godly trait. The way God is, even if God says something, and of course God doesn't make mistakes, but if God was to say something and it turned out not to be right, he would hold himself to it. God does not change. It's a covenant. When he speaks something, it's a contract out of his mouth. He does not change. And God told Adam and Eve that the day you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. They didn't die physically that day, but they died spiritually. They were separated from God and it came to pass. God said that there was judgment upon sin. And last night I tried to explain this, that it was actually to put fear in us and a detriment for for us living in sin. And it actually limited Satan's control over the human race. And God did those things to keep us alive and still functional until Jesus could come and redeem us from the law and from sin. But when he said these things, it was the truth coming out of his mouth. It was a law and God could not change. All of his ways are judgment. He is just. And because of that, 
There's a major problem here. Last night I was sharing 1 John 4, 8, that God is love, that he's a God of mercy and of justice. And those things seem to be opposites. And again, most of us, if, if our heart was really love and somebody just did us something wrong, we just say, well, I forgive you. And we let it go. But God as a just God couldn't do that. The payment on sin had to be made. So how do you combine justice and mercy? How do you combine holiness and all of his ways being right with God forgiving us? You know, there's a lot of people that just don't think things through like this. And to them, this is unimportant. Who cares how God did it? But if you could understand how just and how holy God was and how great man's transgression was, then it makes you appreciate the love. It helps you to understand the love and the mercy of God. And I think it's worth the effort to understand this. You know, here's an example before I get into these scriptures. If you were to go before a judge because you had been speeding and you got a massive fine, I mean, it was like you were gonna have to do time because you did something so wrong. And if you went before the judge, but it turned out that the judge was your friend and this guy loved you and he was a great friend of yours. Most of you would think, oh man, this is a good deal. My, my friend, my, the judge is my friend. He's going to give me mercy. And so you go expecting to get a reduced sentence or to just walk on the thing because after all the judge is your friend, but if he is a just judge, then you know what? He has no choice but to execute the judgment of the law over you. And if he would be a just judge, he couldn't just let you go because he loves you because you're his friend. He has to administer the punishment. So you go before him and he brings the gavel down and he says, you're guilty. Three days in jail, a thousand dollar fine, whatever it is. And you're disappointed. But then the judge takes his robes off and walks around in front of the thing. And he says, because you're my friend, I'll serve your time. I'll take your punishment. I'll pay your fine. See, that's a picture of what Jesus did. God loved the human race, but we sinned and the wages of sin is death. And a holy God couldn't just say, well, I choose not to uh, hold it against you. I think we'll just do over I'll forgive you. No, the holiness of God, his justice had to be satisfied. And that is the reason that Jesus came. Look at this passage over in Psalms chapter 85. This is one of my favorite scriptures. This is a powerful, powerful truth. And it's speaking of the same thing I'm talking about here. In Psalms chapter 85, In verse 10, it says, mercy and truth are meant together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. You know, this is kind of poetical and sometimes people don't even think about this, but think about what he's talking about. Mercy and truth are meant together. The truth is that we sinned against God. The truth is that all of us were separated from God. The truth is that Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. There is a price that has to be paid for sin and that is death. And that's not just talking about physical death. Physical death was only a part of that. It's talking about separation from God. 
That's what caused physical death to come is because we were separated from God. And so it includes depression is a form of death. Poverty is a form of death. Sickness is a form of death. Uh, hurt and pain and anything else that came as a result of sin, all of that is death. And ultimately it is complete separation from God for all eternity. And that is what every one of us owed. We owed a price that we couldn't pay. Nobody could pay it. Man, I could spend days trying to make this point. You know, let me just put a little parenthesis here and I'm going to come back to where I am. But did you know that the great revivalist of history, if any of you have ever studied Charles Finley, uh, Charles Finney, John Wesley, any of these people, John Wesley and, and um, George Whitfield and all of these people, Jonathan Edwards caused a huge revival in 1700 um, America. And I mean, basically the independence of the United States came because of the revival that came through Jonathan Edwards and his preaching. Did you know in the United States constitution, I forget the exact figure now, but there's something like 350 references to preachers sermons in the constitution, direct quotes from, from sermons that were preached because of what was called the great awakening. Man, America was in red hot revival. And you know how Jonathan Edwards did it? This guy was so introverted, he couldn't look at people hardly. He was nearly blind. He wore glasses like Coke bottles. And when he preached, he had to have it written out word for word because he just couldn't do it extemporaneously. So he wrote it out word for word. He was nearly blind and he would hold it in front of him just like this and have to read it like that. You couldn't even see his face, but he would preach with such power and authority. He had a sermon that was one of his favorite ones. And I've read it entitled sinners in the hand of an angry God. And he talked about what I'm saying here, that sin has to be judged. Sin has a payment. The wages of sin is death and be a just God, a holy God has to enforce his word. And there is no such thing as just looking the other way and not dealing with it. Sin has to be judged. And he preached that. And there are accounts of people's hands holding on to the pew in front of them so hard that their knuckles turned white because he would make hell so real that people felt like they were falling into hell and they would start screaming and crying out for God to save them. Now I preach grace and I preach a lot of grace and some people think I would hate that sermon, but you know what? It is an absolutely true sermon. I've read it and there's nothing wrong with that sermon If you're talking about a person who hasn't received Jesus yet, it's true. And I think sometimes people who have come into grace, one of the reasons that they go out and live an ungodly life and they allow grace to cause them to live a sloppy life is because they've never understood that God is a just and holy God. And there has to be a payment for our sins. And they think that he just somehow or another overlooks sins and it's no big deal. You know, it's good for you to recognize that God is just and holy. And because of his truth and his integrity, he cannot just overlook your sin. You know, in the Old Testament, it says that he's covered our sins. Matter of fact, those scriptures that Charlie and Jill were singing today talks about that he has covered our sins. But that was in the Old Covenant. In the New Testament, he didn't just cover them. They are gone. They are removed. 
And he isn't just choosing to look the other way and say, well, I'm no longer mad at people. I'm no longer imputing sin unto them. There was something dramatic that happened that changed the things of God. But because God was holy and just, just like that judge, he had to execute his punishment and his wrath. He told us that if we sin, we die. The wages of sin is death. And there had to be punishment. So under the old covenant, even when the law was given, which released the wrath of God, there was a picture, a type, a shadow of the grace of the new covenant. And that was that an animal had to be killed for sin. Somebody had to die. And under the old covenant, God, in a sense, allowed animals to die for our sin. And every time you sinned, you had to kill an animal and it had to be a perfect animal. You couldn't bring one that was blemished that was going to die anyway. You had to bring one that was perfect because it was symbolic of Jesus. And you had to put something to death every time you sinned. And then, of course, people didn't always confess every sin. And sometimes you sin without even knowing it. You sin without doing it on purpose. And so there was a day of atonement where they brought in a special offering and they made an atonement for all of the sins that were unconfessed and all of the sins that people didn't even realize that they had committed. And they made an offering for that. And so under the old covenant, there was still this type and shadow that sin had to be judged. And in a sense, John uh, West, John, or uh, whom I think, Charles Finney, he came in and what he did, he would preach for 30 days at least on the wrath of God and on the justice of God and the holiness of God. And God is holy and you're unholy. And because of that wrath, would come, and I mean, people would just be laid out on the floor and in streets crying. And, and there's actual reports of people being under bridges asking for God's mercy. And the great revivalists, you know what they used to do? They would first of all, bring you to a place to where you understood how terrible sin was. And after everybody was fearful of the wrath of God, then they would start preaching on the grace of God and show you why God sent Jesus. And, uh, I believe that that's one of the things that's missing in the body of Christ. I preach grace. We are living in a day of grace and I do not preach the wrath of God because Jesus has redeemed us from it. But apart from the sacrifice of Jesus, I guarantee you this world is in serious trouble. Sin is much worse than what people have ever thought today. We have people that have parades and brag about their sin. Amen. You know, right here in this hotel, they had a convention. I forgot what they called it of, uh, fur fest or something where they bring people in who believe that they are animals or that in a previous life they were animals and they dress like animals and crawled on all fours to the counter and bark and growl. And they had a festival to celebrate. I tell you what, our society has gotten to where it's wrong for you to have an opinion and Uh, you know, this person, they were created this way. God made them Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. And God did not ever make anybody homosexual. 
not against homosexuals. I love them. God can forgive them and praise God for grace. But you know what? It's wrong. It's a damaging lifestyle. It's not good. There are things that are right and wrong. And today people are afraid to say that, but I guarantee you God hadn't changed. Our society may change, but God's not politically correct. He still believes that this is right and this is wrong and sin has to be judged. And so if you understand what I'm trying to say right here, this is an amazing statement. Mercy and truth are meant together. The truth was that we were separated from God. The truth was we deserved judgment. How could God, how could mercy and truth ever come together? Because we were separated from God and it was impossible for mercy and truth to come together. Righteousness, which is talking about right standing with God and peace have kissed each other. The truth is all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All of us were unrighteous. It says in the Old Testament quoted again in John, in uh, Romans chapter three, I believe it's around verse 10. It says, there is none righteous. No, not one. There are none that have behaved properly. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so how could righteousness and peace ever come together? How could we ever have peace with God when the truth is we were unrighteous? God can't just all of a sudden decide to say, well, I just decide I'll change my standard. I'll lower my standards. I'll overlook it. How did this happen? Man, this happened through Jesus becoming the lamb of God for us. When John the Baptist saw him, he says, behold, the lamb of God. Many of us have read that in the Bible and it's just a religious phrase, but you know what? To the Jewish people who were in this sacrificial system and they killed as sometimes they killed hundreds of thousands of animals in one day at some of their feast when Solomon had it. And they saw animals killed and their throats slit to atone for our sins. They were into this sacrificial system. They knew, and when John said, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, the people immediately understood what he was talking about. All of those lambs and bullocks that were killed under the old Testament were symbolic pictures of Jesus but Jesus wasn't a symbol. He was the real deal. And God literally killed his son to satisfy justice. The judge got out from behind the desk, took his robes off and became a physical human being and took our punishment. That's the only way that righteousness and peace could ever come together. It's the only way that mercy and truth could ever come together is there had to be a payment made for sin. And like Charlie and Jill were singing one drop of Jesus blood. He was so holy and so pure that for God almighty to die for the sins of the human race, one drop of God's blood was worth more than all of the iniquity and the sin of the human race for time past to time in the future, all eternity. It wasn't as Uh, our sins weren't as bad as one drop of Jesus blood was good. It was greater than the debt. It says over in uh, Isaiah chapter 40, this is part of that series that I have on the war is over. The Lord was prophesying about Jesus coming and he said, say unto Jerusalem that her sins 
have been paid for double. How could you pay double? No person could suffer enough. Eternity. How do you pay for an eternal separation from God? For God to become a man and then shed his blood, it was worth more than all of our sins. I tell you, I don't think most people understand how bad sin was and therefore they don't understand how great the sacrifice was for Jesus to become a man. It's just amazing. And when somebody says something like, well, I know that Jesus is alive and I know that he can forgive sins, but you just don't understand what I've done. Boy, you don't have a clue. You don't have a clue the price that was paid. That's like you coming up to pay for something and it costs $10 and you're struggling and saying, man, I only have $9. I, I don't have enough. I can't pay. And I walk up and I just say, here's a million dollars. Will that cover it? <laughs> Amen. I mean, that more than covers it. That's what God did. We owed a debt that we couldn't pay. And God says, I'll pay it. And he paid infinitely greater than the sins of the entire human race. And now for you to still have this old mindset. Now I've been talking about how deadly sin is and how justice has to be served and you've got to pay. And all of that's true, but Jesus paid that debt for us. And now for you to go through life with a sin consciousness and feeling unworthy and that somehow or another, I don't deserve the things of God. It is an insult against Jesus. And the church today has not truly glorified the Lord and the tremendous debt that was paid. Matter of fact, you go into the average church, they will still be emphasizing the first part of this message, what I've been saying, that sin is terrible. Sin separates you from God. Sin's got to be judged. I actually, some of you aren't going to believe this, but I grew up in a church and the preacher, this was the Baptist church. He would jump on this part of the pulpit and stand on this. And there was a mic right here and he would bend over and scream and yell and he'd lose up to five pounds when he preached because he would scream and yell. That's the church I was raised. I mean, not the church I grew up in as a kid, but when I was a teenager, that's the church I went to. And he would, his favorite saying was, sin's got to be judged. Sin's got to be judged. If you sin, God's going to judge you. You're going to suffer for your sin. He had a partial truth that sin's got to be judged, but what he missed was that sin was judged in the flesh of the Lord Jesus, and I do not have to pay for my sin. And the church is still emphasizing that sin's got to be judged, but they aren't recognizing that Jesus paid for our sin, and it has been judged. And if God is angry at you for your sin, then that's double jeopardy. Sin's already been paid for it. Jesus suffered for our sin and God is not angry at you. In Isaiah chapter 54, let me just turn over. I mentioned this briefly last night, but in Isaiah chapter 54, if you're familiar with scripture, Isaiah 53 is the great prophetic scriptures that uh, Isaiah wrote about Jesus, that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. And it is a tremendous prophecy about the death of Jesus, the sacrificial death as the lamb of God. 
And then it says this in chapter 54, these are the benefits of what Jesus did for us. In Isaiah chapter 54 and verse nine, for this is as the waters of Noah unto me. Now this is significant what he's saying. Again, most people just read this and don't think about it, but there were different types of covenants made. Some of them said, if you do this, then I'll do this. But then there was a covenant that was an unconditional covenant. And this is the type of covenant that was made with Noah. He didn't say, now, if you never do anything to aggravate me again, if you live holy and if the human race never again corrupts themselves, then I'll never destroy the earth with a flood. No, but the covenant that was made with Noah was unconditional, regardless of what we do. And I guarantee you, the human race is sinning against God and violating his standards big time. But God will never, ever destroy this earth with a flood again. I don't care how bad we get. He will never do that. There may be local floods. There might be individual instances, but he will never destroy mankind with the flood. He promised by himself and swore. And so it's an unconditional covenant. And he's saying that this is an unconditional covenant, just like the one I made with Noah. So he's saying that regardless of what people do, here's what I'm going to do. Regardless of your compliance or not, this is how I'm going to act. And he says, for as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be wroth with thee nor rebuke thee. What a statement. And yet how many people have you heard saying, you've probably said it yourself, oh, God's angry at me. God's upset with me. God's displeased with me. The Lord rebuked me. That's not true. You may feel that way, but it's not God doing that. That's your own conscience and the devil doing those things to you. You know, I spent a lot of time in Vietnam thinking that I had just sinned so much that God had put me on a shelf and I thought God was through with me. And um, praise God, that was my own conscience condemning me. That wasn't God's judgment. Matter of fact, it talks about in 1 John chapter three, it says, if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. God is not the one condemning you. Romans chapter eight, verse one, there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. And that word no there is an absolute negative, absolutely none, zero, not a zilch. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And yet the average person in this room feels condemnation often. Not coming from God, but coming from the Old Testament law. This was the purpose of the Old Testament law was to condemn you and to make you feel rotten and grieve over your sin. And if you are condemned, it's because you're under the Old Testament law. Somebody said, oh no, it's because of what I did. No, God's not condemning you. It's your own conscience that condemns you and Satan takes advantage of it. And God is not condemning you. Your heart can condemn you when God isn't the source of it. We've been attributing this sense of guilt and shame to God as God causing this. God is not the one who's doing that. Thank you for that one amen. I know that this is strange to some of you, but I'm, I'm reading out of scripture. He said, in the same way I've made an unconditional covenant with Noah, I have determined unconditionally that I will never be angry at you or rebuke you again. God is never angry at you. 
He is never upset with you. Some of you just can't wrap your brain around that. We've been told to lie so long that we just can't embrace it. But this is what the word of God says. This is the benefit of our salvation. Now, God loves you. He loves you so much that he's not willing to leave you the way you are. And he will show you that this is wrong, but it's never for the purpose of rejection. It's never for the purpose of judgment. There's a difference between correction and anger and punishment and just venting his frustration. And basically people are taking the old Testament where God was angry at sin and released his wrath. And they're imposing that on new Testament believers. And it's different because Jesus forever satisfied the wrath of God. He's already paid our sentence and God is never angry at you. He will never rebuke you. He will show you. I I talked to a woman just last night. And I'm not mentioning this woman's name. I'm not against her. I'm not trying to come against somebody, but she was talking about having a relationship with a guy. And I just said, so are you living with him? She said, yes. And I said, are you born again? Yes. Are you spirit filled? Yes. And yet she's just shacking up with the guy. And I said, you know what? God loves you. I love you. I'm not mad at you. But I said, do you understand how that you are just destroying yourself? You have cheapened yourself. And I said, any guy who would just shack up with you and not make a commitment to you, I don't care if he claims to be a Christian or not. There's a reason why he's not committed to you. Because if you get to where you aren't an asset, he'll drop you. I said, this is stupid to live that way. And I said, God loves you. I'm not mad at you, but you're just stupid. And you are giving inroad of the devil into your life. Stop it. Quit living like that. There's a difference between you and an animal. And some people say, well, boy, you condemned her. I didn't condemn her. I I hugged the woman. I said, man, I love you. God loves you. You're worth more than this. That's not condemnation. The Lord doesn't just say, oh, well, it's all right. You know, you just shack up with people, live a homosexual lifestyle, do dope, drink, smoke, do whatever. No, God loves you in spite of what you do, but he loves you so much. He's going to tell you that this is a destructive thing for your life and he will do it in a positive way. It's not a condemning ministry. It's a positive ministry. The guilt and the condemnation and the shame is not God. He will never rebuke you or be uh, angry with you again. And then in verse 10, it says, for the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed. In case you don't know, that hasn't happened yet. You don't have any mountains here, so you might not know this, but I'm telling you, when I look out my window, Pikes Peak is right there and it's still there. So the mountains haven't been removed yet. The hills haven't been removed. So this hasn't happened yet, but those things may happen, but my kindness shall not depart from thee, neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord that hath mercy on thee. God, through Jesus, made a covenant that he would never be angry with us nor rebuke us. The mountains and hills are going to depart before God ever removes his covenant of peace from us. God has made a covenant now and he will never be angry with us. God is never upset with you. 
He loves you so much that when he sees you doing something destructive, he'll tell you that it's destructive and quit doing it, but it is never punishment. How can this be? How can righteousness and peace have kissed each other? How could mercy and truth come together? Because God placed every bit of his wrath for your sin and my sin upon Jesus. Look at this passage in John chapter 12. This is Jesus not long before his crucifixion. He was getting close to the time that he was going to offer himself up. And in verse 28, in front of all of these people, Jesus said out loud, Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Jesus just broke out into prayer right in front of the crowd. And an audible voice out of heaven came and answered him and said, I have glorified your name. I will glorify it again. And look at what happened. It says the people, therefore, that stood by and heard it said that it thundered. Others said an angel spoke unto him. Now, this is a great truth right here. There's some people that think, oh, if we could just have a demonstration, if somehow or another we could find Noah's Ark, that would prove to all of the skeptics that the Bible is true. And if we could find this and do, and they're looking for some way to convince people. You know, I've had people come to me and say, look, if these things are really true, and if you've seen people raised from the dead, and if you've seen blind eyes open, why don't you document it and just make people believe? You can't make people believe. People saw Lazarus raised from the dead and they plotted how to kill him and Jesus. In the 16th chapter of Luke, Jesus gave this teaching about the rich man who died and went to hell and he wanted Lazarus to come and dip his finger in water and cool his tongue. And he said, we can't do it. There's a gulf between us. And he says, well, then send Lazarus back uh, so that he could warn my brothers. He had five brothers and Abraham said, he has Moses and the prophets. Let him listen to the word of God. And he said, oh, they won't listen to the word, but if one rose from the dead, they would believe. And Abraham said, if they don't believe the word, they won't believe though one rose from the dead. We're always looking for some physical, natural reasoning way to make people convert. It can't be done that way. You can't argue a person into salvation. You can't back them into a corner and prove anything. They have to believe with their heart. Romans chapter 10, verse 10, with the heart man believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. You can't argue a person. They got to believe with their heart. Here were people that heard the audible voice of God and some of them thought it's thunder. A hardened heart will find some way to excuse away any supernatural thing. If you are waiting until there is zero doubt, zero possibility to doubt, And then you're going to trust God. You'll never trust God. You have to take a step of faith. It's not a blind step of faith. God will confirm things. He will give you reasons to believe, but ultimately it's going to have to be faith. It's only by faith that you please God. It's only by faith that you can uh, connect with God. You cannot ever just figure God out. Our little peanut brain is not capable of reasoning everything out, but your heart It can embrace all of these things. So here's an example where people heard the audible voice of God and thought it thundered. Other refused to believe it was God. They thought it was an angel talking. And then in verse 30, Jesus answered and said, this voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. 
In other words, Jesus didn't need to hear an audible voice. He was already in communion with his father and he didn't need something physical, tangible. He had faith. Faith is what moves God. Faith is what uh, touches God's heart. And so he says, I didn't need this. This came for your sake. And then he says in verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This said he, signifying what death he should die. You know, I read this in context because people take this 32nd verse out of context all of the time. And they say, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. And they just say that if you preach the gospel correctly, if you truly glorify God, he'll draw all people unto himself. At one time, I believed that. At one time, I actually wondered why I wasn't drawing mega crowds because man, to the best of my ability, I was glorifying the Lord. But this isn't talking about that. If you preach the gospel correctly, then you'll have the biggest church, the biggest ministry. That's not true. You can't observe that today. Some of the biggest churches, our mega churches today, I guarantee you are not glorifying God. I'm not saying that about every one of them, but I'm saying much of it, they have compromised. Right here in Chicago, one of the guys that pioneered the seeker-friendly church uh, came out a year or two ago and basically said his, his uh, experience was a failure. He thought that if I, he could just compromise and cut the preaching down and do things that would attract people in modern type of music and lights and this and that and do everything and draw people in, then eventually he'd get them during the week into small groups and see them converted and stuff. And this man came out and said that it is a failure. I have drawn crowds, but they are not born again. They aren't true disciples. And the guy who pioneered that admit that it was a failure. Some of the biggest churches are compromising to draw the people. I go to one of those big churches of what, 10,000 people or more. One of the reasons I go there is so I can hide. (laughs) I go to these small churches and they want me to preach and they want every time something happens, they want me and I can't go and listen and receive. So I go to a big church and I've told the pastor before, I said, if you were to turn this church over to me, I could whittle it down to a thousand people in a month's time. you'd let me have it for two or three months, I'd probably get it down to six or 700 people you have that are committed to God and the rest. It's a spirit filled charismatic church and over 50% of the people don't speak in tongues. It's a charismatic church. And yet if you were to preach on healing and say that it's God's will, not just that God could do it, but that he wants you well and start preaching on faith, you'd be rebuked. It, there, there are compromises made. I'm not against it. It's a good church, but it's, it's, I can guarantee you that the biggest crowds are not coming to the people who are preaching the word, right? This is not what this is talking about. What this is talking about, if you look at it right here, the word men in this verse is italicized in the King James version, which is the only one I'm aware of that does this. But at least they were honest enough that when something wasn't in the original languages, they would put it in italics to let you know that this was their interpretation. And sometimes you have to do this. Like for instance, when Jesus, when they came out to arrest him and he said, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am. That's what he actually said. 
but they put I am he to make it grammatically correct. There needed to be an object. And so grammatically correct, they put I am he is in there, but it's italicized. And so what you really hear him saying is when they came out and said, whom do you seek? He said, I am. It's the same I am that was at the burning bush with Moses. And he said, I am. And immediately 60 soldiers fell backwards to the ground by Jesus saying, I am. His power was released. It was awesome. I'm not against this because sometimes to make a full sentence in English, you had to put some things in and and the sentence structure of Greek was a little bit different. So I'm not criticizing, but I'm saying that at least they were honest enough that when something wasn't in the original language, they would put in italics to let you know that this is what they added. So this word, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. Men isn't in the original languages. He said, I, if I be lifted up, will draw all unto me. All what? Look at the context. Verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. Look at the verse after verse 32. Verse 33 says, and this he said, signifying what death he should die. Jesus wasn't talking about preaching him properly and glorifying him and all people will come to him. He was saying that when he is lifted up, talking about put on a cross and lifted up, that he would draw all judgment unto him. He was talking about his death. And so what Jesus did, Jesus became that lamb. He poured out his life and the judgment of God, all of it. He was just like a lightning rod attracts all of that electricity in the air. Jesus was a lightning rod for the wrath of God and every bit of wrath, all of God's hatred for sin, everything in God that was holy and hated sin. He put all of that on his son and he released wrath and punishment upon his son. Jesus didn't just become a token sacrifice. It says 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He, God the Father, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God. Jesus didn't take just a little bit of sin. He suffered. He became sin. This is hard for some people to grab hold of. But Jesus became sin. Jesus became a homosexual. He became a murderer, an adulteress, a liar, a thief. I know that some of you are very offended by this, but that's what we were. And Jesus became what we were so that we could become what he is. And when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This wasn't a play. It wasn't an act. It wasn't a formality that he was going through. And so they just were going through the motions to do this. God literally put the sin of the human race, every vile thing that has ever been done. Think about all of the stuff that you've done. Think about your worst night of sin. Think about stuff that you've done and the shame that you've felt. Multiply that times billions and billions and billions of people. Jesus felt all of that. 
all of that sin and all of that shame, all that corruption entered into him. You know, if I had time, I just don't have time today. You could turn over to Isaiah 52 and read in verse 13. And it says his visage was marred more than any man. The word visage means face. Jesus' face was marred more than any man that has ever lived on the earth. And it says his form more than the sons of man. The NIV says so. I forget the exact wording, but it's talking about he didn't even look human. If you saw the movie, The Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson, they portrayed a brutal beating of Jesus. But you know what? He still looked like a human who had been brutalized. The truth is that that movie didn't even come close to doing justice to what happened to Jesus. Jesus wasn't just physically abused by the Romans, although that happened and that was a terrible thing. But all sin of the human race entered into Jesus and all of the corruption, the sickness and the disease of the human race entered into his body so that he, his face was more marred than any person. I've had people come to me. One guy had his nose and lips eaten off with cancer and you could see up inside of him. That was grody. I had another guy that had a cancer that had eaten out his eye and this cancer was over his whole face and this cancer was there. Did you know Jesus looked worse than that? God literally put our sin and then the sickness and the disease, all of the elephantitis, every deformity, every swollen head that has ever happened on the face of the earth entered into the physical body of Jesus so that all the sickness of humanity for all time entered into his body and he didn't even look like a human hanging on the cross. This wasn't a type and a shadow. Jesus literally bore it. All of the wrath of God, when he was lifted up, all of God's wrath came unto him. And when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was a quote from Psalms chapter 22. And the next verse says, but you are holy, O God, that inhabits the praises of of your people Israel. You know why God forsook Jesus? Because God was holy and Jesus became unholy. He bore sickness and sin and God literally forsook his son and turned his back on his son because that's the punishment that you and I were due. And if you can understand this, if you can understand how bad our sin was and that God couldn't just overlook it, if you can understand that Jesus had to pay this price then you know what? It shows you something about God. You talk about knowing the way of God. This illustrates the tremendous love that God has for you and for me. That he didn't just say, all right, I'm just going to let you go. I won't punish you. No, he punished us. He punished us in Jesus. He put all of his wrath upon his son. He poured all of it out and there isn't any wrath left. The wrath of God that will be exhibited in the future is not going to be over people's individual sins because it says in 1 John 2, 2, that Jesus is the propitiation. That word means the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only, talking about believers, but also for the sins of the whole world. 
Did you know that Jesus paid for everyone's sins, not only Christians, not only the people who would accept him, people who have renounced Jesus have had their sins paid for. Jesus took those sins and the punishment and the wrath of God upon him and the sins of the entire universe have been paid for. Some people think, is everybody forgiven? No, because you have to accept it. You aren't going to go to hell for your individual sins. They were paid for. You're going to go to heaven or hell based on your response to Jesus. And a person who rejects Jesus and renounces him or a person who ignores him. If you truly understood the tremendous debt, the tremendous price that was paid, how much Jesus suffered for a person to ignore that and think, well, I think I'm good enough. God's going to accept me because I'm a really good person compared to this person. I'm really good. Boy, there isn't a hell deep enough or an eternity long enough to punish a person who rejects so great a salvation. A person who ignores it. That's what's going to send people to hell is their, their rejection of Jesus, not their individual sins. They're going to go to hell with their sins paid for. But the one sin, the blasphemy against the conviction of the Holy Spirit that brings us revelation of Jesus, that sin is unpardonable. And that's what's going to send people to hell. And the wrath of God will be vented on them, not for their individual sins, because that's already been paid for. But it's going to be the rejection of Jesus. That's the only issue. And if you understand what I've tried to say here What it does, it shows you that God is such a God of love and compassion. I can't even imagine. In my most holy moment, I can't imagine me ever taking one of my sons and punishing him for all of the stuff that the people in this room have done. I just don't love you that much. (laughs) I can't imagine doing that to one of my sons. And this is just a small token of the human race. For God to send his son and punish him and do this and bring all of his judgment upon Jesus. If you understand that correctly, this will show you the way of God, the love of God. What more does it take to demonstrate unto us how much God loves us? And yet the average Christian person who has already accepted their forgiveness and they're going to go to heaven, they've not thought the way that I'm thinking. And they still feel that every time they sin, It's a brand new transgression against God and they've got to get that repented of and that God is upset and God won't answer your prayer if you have an unconfessed sin. I've had three people come up to me this morning, so I'm just going to say this real quickly. I don't have time to answer it, but people, uh, religion again has taught that, oh yeah, you may have accepted this forgiveness and you may be totally forgiven, but that was up until this point. And now that you're saved, you got to keep every sin confessed. And if you have an unconfessed sin in your life, you'd die and go to hell. So you can be saved, lost, saved, lost, saved, lost, in, in Christ, now to Christ, born again, 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 again. That's what religion's teaching. That's not what the Bible teaches. God forgave all of your sins, past, present, and even future sins have been forgiven. I wish I had time to teach on that. Maybe tonight I'll try and explain that a little bit more, but that is one radical truth. People think, how could God forgive a sin before I commit it? 
you better hope that he did because he only died for your sins 2,000 years ago. He didn't die for your sins last week or last year. It was 2,000 years ago before you or I existed. If God can't forgive a sin before you commit it, none of us could get saved. God forgave our future sins. He has wiped sin out. And that leads to probably my next thing I'll teach you on tonight. How could this be? Because you look in the mirror and you see the results of your sin. You search your emotions and you feel the results of your sin and you think, God, I just don't understand how you can overlook all these terrible things that I've done. It's because when you got born again, you became a new person in Christ. And John chapter four, verse 24 says, God is a spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. You have to connect with God spirit to spirit and your spirit is completely new and there is no sin in it. There is no impurity. You are now a totally brand new person that in the spirit, you are as righteous and holy and pure as Jesus is. And because of that, a holy God can now fellowship with you because he's not fellowshipping with your flesh and your mental part. He's looking at you in the spirit and you are as righteous and pure right this moment as you will be throughout eternity. Amen. These are some of the ways of God that he's explained to me that have totally changed my life because I knew that I was a sinner and I couldn't understand how holy God could love me. I might've accepted that he would love me enough that he wouldn't send me to hell, but he certainly wasn't pleased with me. And he certainly wasn't going to use me because I didn't have everything in my life straightened out. But through these things that I've talked about, I finally came to realize that Jesus dealt with my sin and obliterated it. It's not just covered and it gets uncovered every once in a while. It's gone in my spirit. There is no sin. I am as righteous and holy and pure as Jesus is. First John four seventeen, And I begin to understand that and understand that God's a spirit and he sees me in the spirit. And I now understand how a holy God can love an unholy me. Because in the spirit, I'm not unholy. I'm a new creation. And I now understand that even though I don't do everything the way I should, it doesn't stop God from using me. You know, there are most of you in here believe in the supernatural power of God, or you wouldn't be out here on a Saturday morning listening to me in a hotel. You'd just be doing your nod to God duty tomorrow and let that be it. You're fanatics. So you believe in the supernatural power of God. And when I tell you, you that my son was raised from the dead after being dead for five hours that he sat up and started talking with no brain damage, no more than he had before. (laughs) Most of you believe that. And if somebody was to fall over dead and if I said, praise God, we're going to believe God for a miracle. I've seen people raised from the dead. How many of you believe God can raise this person from the dead? Most of you would be right there with me. You'd be shouting, amen, go for it, brother. But then I'd say, all right, if you believe it, you come up here and pray for me. And you know what? Many of you who just, amen, I believe this. I believe God can do it. When I say you come up here and pray for him, all of a sudden your faith turns to fear. 
your excitement turns to dread. What changed? Did you quit believing that God had the power? Why is it that when I say, all right, if you believe it, you pray for him. You know what it is? It's this constant sense of condemnation and guilt and unworthiness that we bear. And we think that God is only going to use us when we're worth being used, when we've done everything right, when we're holy and your own conscience is condemning you. You don't doubt that God can do it. You just doubt that God will do it because you have a sin consciousness. You don't doubt that God can do it. You doubt that he will do it because of sin consciousness. And the scripture says in Hebrews 10 too, that we should have no more conscience of sin. If you understood what we were talking about and how God placed all of your sin, even the sins you hadn't committed yet on Jesus and Jesus suffered 100% of it and God's wrath is satisfied. He'll never be angry with you. He will never rebuke you. It's a covenant of peace and it'll never change. God's wrath was placed on Jesus. There is no wrath left in him for you. He is not going to give you what you deserve. He'll give you whatever you can believe. If you understood that, you'd be just as bold to come up here and pray for a person to be raised from the dead if you believe that God can do it. The only thing is we, we factor ourselves into it. And this is where Satan is destroying us because we think he's going to move in our life proportional to our holiness. That is basically the message of religion. If you want God to move in your life, you got to be holy. You got to go to church, pay your tithes, do this, 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 and this, or God won't use you. God won't use a dirty vessel. I want to share with you, God hadn't got any other kind of vessel to use. Amen. If you're just talking about our flesh, all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And God doesn't use you based on who you are in the flesh. It's based on who you are in the spirit. It's on what Jesus did. We pray in the name of Jesus instead of the name of Andrew Womack or whatever your name is. You aren't claiming your righteousness and holiness. Father, because of who Jesus is, I take my authority and speak this. And if Satan, the only thing he could ever accuse, the only thing he could ever destroy us with is our own unworthiness. He can't convince you that God isn't worthy, that Jesus isn't good, that he doesn't have power. What he'll do is say, oh yeah, God can do it, but he won't do it for you, you sorry thing. You didn't fast and pray. You had a fight on the way to church this morning and he'll condemn you. And we submit to that condemnation because we don't understand the way of God. We don't understand that he paid the price. It would have taken us all eternity in hell to pay for our sins. So God sent Jesus and took the sins of the entire human race, all of our sickness and disease, and he paid for everything so that it's a done deal. Sin isn't even an issue with God today. That'd get me crucified in most churches. They say, you're making a lot of sin. Well, I say, you're making a lot of Jesus. don't have the time to try and convince you, but I think I hate sin and I understand the problem of sin and the terribleness of sin more than most people do. I hate it, but I also understand Jesus paid for our sins more than most people do. 
So I'm not making light of sin. I'm not saying that it's okay for you just to go live in sin. You're stupid if you live in sin. But I'm saying God loves you, stupid. Amen. He's not mad at you. But you're just absolutely stupid to go live in sin. How dumb can you get and still breathe? Quit sinning. But you'll never completely be perfect. You'll never do everything right. And just understand that God took all of his wrath against your sin and put it on his son. And I can guarantee you, if Jesus hadn't have completely satisfied the demands of God, God would never have gone to that expense. He wouldn't have punished his son if it didn't really solve the problem. He solved the problem. Sin is not an issue with God. It's not Jesus suffering plus your suffering. Jesus paid it all. And it's humility on your part to just say, you know, there's nothing I can add to it. My groveling in the dirt can't improve God's opinion of me. There's nothing I can do that makes God love me more than what Jesus did. I've met people before that pulled up their pants legs and showed me scars on their knees and scars on their elbows and hands where they in, in Central America during Lent had to actually crawl. One guy crawled three miles over broken glass and cut himself and scarred himself to do penance. I've heard of other people that actually go through crucifixion and they suffer for their sins thinking that this will appease an angry God. That is a a fence against God because you're saying that Jesus isn't enough. I have to add to it my crawling over broken glass, my being crucified, my suffering, me going through Lent and afflicting myself. That is a slap in the face of Jesus. I know many of you don't like that, but that's just the truth. You're saying that you have to pay for your sins. Jesus paid for your sins. And any attempt that you have to pay for your sins and add to what Jesus does takes away from it. It cheapens it. We need to come to a place where Jesus paid it all. And we just, all we can do is say, Father, I receive. I make Jesus my Lord and I receive by faith what he did for me. If you try and add to it, you cheapen it. You diminish it. And sad to say, this is where most of us have been because we haven't understood the way of God. We haven't understood what he did. Praise God. I believe that the Lord has shared some truth with you that has set you free today. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Father, thank you for these truths that your word reveals to us. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would take these things and make it real in our heart. That every person in here, regardless of our religious traditions or doctrines of men that tend to make the word of no effect, I pray that your Holy Spirit and the word would break these things. And today we would understand that Jesus paid it all, that there's nothing we can do to improve on it, add to it. Any attempt to improve it actually destroys it. Thank you, Father, for sending Jesus. Thank you for rejecting your own son. Thank you for punishing him for my sin. Thank you, Father, that you love me so much that you did all of that. And I just receive that love and believe that this is like the covenant that you made with Noah, that you'll never be angry with me nor rebuke me. Your covenant of peace will never come off of me, regardless of how stupid I act, regardless of what I do. Thank you that you love me, Father. 
Thank you, Father. Well, God is ministering his love to people all over this room. There are some of you that have never really understood this. You thought that you were doing God a favor by bearing this sense of unworthiness. You thought that was humility. The truth is it's humility to just humble yourself and say, oh, thank you, Father, that through you, I am the righteousness of God. I am a new creature. And you need to shed this unworthiness and this condemnation that you have cultivated and lived with your entire life. You need to repent of your self-righteousness and thinking that your goodness is somehow or another impressing God and just humble yourself and receive right standing through what Jesus did for you, independent of you. There's some people in here that are good people, but your faith has been in yourself. And God is just wiping that away and showing you that it's none of your goodness. It's none of your righteousness. It's all a savior. And you're going to enter into a brand new relationship by knowing the way of God. You are now going to come to know God at a depth that you've never known before. I speak this over you in the name of the Lord. And I believe that the Holy Spirit is burning these truths into your heart that they will never be erased. That no doctrines of man will ever compromise this. Thank you, Father. We agree and we receive this in the mighty name of Jesus. Praise the Lord. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. You know, I think it would be a shame for me to preach this message and not give an opportunity to any person who has never made Jesus your Lord to do so. There's so many people that go to church and they're religious, but they're, they're just dealing with the external. They're trying to live better, do better, but they aren't being changed at the heart level. They don't have God on the inside of them. And I can promise you, if you have been trusting in your goodness, then you have not trusted in Jesus. There are going to be multitudes, millions of church people stand before God. And when he says, what makes you worthy? They're going to say, oh, well, look at my church giving. Look at my church attendance. I did this good deed over here. And they are going to be sent to hell because their faith was in their goodness instead of in a savior. There's going to be millions of church people like that. If your faith has been in your goodness and you hadn't understood that Jesus paid it all, you need to receive Jesus as your savior. You need to be born again. I'm telling you, there's some of you that just seems like you struggle and you can't understand why things weren't working. It's because you aren't born again. You need to make a real commitment and put your faith 100% in Jesus, not Jesus plus yourself. And if you've already been born again, but if you don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's impossible for you to understand what I've talked about. You might have been blessed today, but I can guarantee you, you'll lose this within hours of being out of this auditorium if you don't have the Holy Spirit. It takes the Holy Spirit to grant revelation like this. This is counterintuitive. This is not the way that people do things. You have to have the Holy Spirit explain this to you. And I tell you, when you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, your understanding of God will go through the roof. When I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's like my Bible was brand new. Prior to that time, it was a book. 
that I memorized and read, but it didn't make much of an impact. When I received the Holy Spirit, it's like I couldn't open up the Bible without God just yelling at me. (laughs) I mean, it came alive. It began to burn on the inside of me. The baptism of the Holy Spirit will grant you revelation of the Word of God and these truths. You cannot understand God without the Holy Spirit explaining Him to you. So if you have not received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which includes a lot of things, but it includes speaking in tongues. If you don't speak in tongues, you need to receive this for you to operate in this. Otherwise, it's impossible. You will not retain it. Is there anybody in here who says, I need to do one or both of those things? I either need to make Jesus my Lord and truly trust Him for my salvation and or I need the baptism of the Holy Spirit and this gift of speaking in tongues. Anybody here like that today? If that's you, I want you to raise your hand and let me pray with you and we want to see you receive. If there's still people here, we've already had, I don't know, 130 people or so receive, but praise God, there's people here today that still need to receive these great things from God. If you raised your hand or if you needed to raise your hand, would you just get up out of your seat and come forward right now and let me pray with you and help you to receive today. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. God bless you. Are you born again? Awesome. So you're coming to receive the Holy Spirit. Brother, you've been up here every time. You are going to miss a thing, are you? You know, you can only be born again one time. No, I'm not going to. I'm born. All right. Are you baptized in the Holy Spirit? Well, you've come up here every time. That's right. I'm going to keep coming. All right. But you know what? The moment you ask, God gave you the Holy Spirit. You just need to believe you've got it and continue and speak in tongues. You need to continue until you speak in tongues. That's okay for you to come up here. That's great. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Isn't this awesome? Thank you, Father. You know, none of us fully understand how much God loves us. We get little glimpses of it, but man, can you imagine loving somebody enough that you would take your son or your daughter and kill them for what somebody else did? Give them the punishment that somebody else deserves because you love that person so much. Man, I can't even come close to thinking about that. And yet that's how much God loved every one of us. And he wants you to receive the Holy Spirit. Before you can receive the Holy Spirit, you first of all got to be born again yourself. You have to make sure that your faith is in a Savior and that you aren't just going through the motions trying to be a good person, but that you've humbled yourself and accepted the gift of salvation that comes through Jesus. Is there anybody here who's not certain that you've ever done that? I need to pray with you first. You have to receive the giver before you receive the gift. Is there anybody who'd say, I need to pray and make Jesus my personal Savior? Anybody? Here's a couple down here. Anybody else? Anyone else? Somebody else down here, raise your hand. I missed it. Anybody else? Are you sure? I'm not trying to make you doubt or talk you out of it. You just got to be sure. If there is any reservation in your heart, let's settle it. 
Bible says that if you confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. You shall be saved. We're going to do that. And you can end it today. You can say, I've done that. Never again. Am I going to have to wonder about it? Jesus is my savior. Anybody else? I think there was three people. Anybody else? All right, what I'm going to do is I'm going to lead you in a prayer and I'm going to say words consistent with Romans 10, 9 that says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And so I'm going to lead you in a prayer and I'd like you to repeat this after me. And if you will mean this from your heart, it's not just like you say it and it automatically works. You got to mean it. You got to believe it in your heart. But if you will confess it with your mouth and believe it in your heart, then you'll become a brand new person on the inside. You'll get born again. Isn't that an awesome deal? Jesus already paid for your sins and all you got to do is humble yourself and receive it. I'd like to ask everybody to pray this with me so that they won't feel like we're just listening to them. Say, Father, I'm sorry for my sin. I believe Jesus died to forgive my sin. And I receive that forgiveness. Jesus, I make you my Lord. I believe that you rose from the dead. That you now live in me. I am forgiven. I am saved. In the name of Jesus. Amen. You believe that? life. You became a brand new person. You may look the same on the outside, but inside the Bible says you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So now every person up here has made Jesus their Lord. And because of it, you are all the temple of the Holy Spirit. God created you to fill with his Holy Spirit. There is no way that he would not fill you with the Holy Spirit. This is what you were made for. And if you heard what I was preaching today, he's already paid for all of your sins. He's not going to hold anything against you. If you've got problems in your life, that makes you a prime candidate for receiving the Holy Spirit. It doesn't stop you from receiving. The reason he wants to give you the Holy Spirit is to give you power so that you can start living a victorious life. So we aren't going to beg God. We aren't going to plead. We aren't going to have to wait for three or four days for the Holy Spirit to come on you. We're just going to open up the doors of this temple and welcome the Holy Spirit to come into our life. And I guarantee you, God wants to come in more than you want him to come in. God is going to give every one of you this gift of the Holy Spirit and the ability to speak in tongues. And then I'm going to ask my prayer ministers to come up here. These are all people who are born again and spirit filled, and they're going to come up here and stand behind you. And they're going to lay hands on you because the Bible says that when you lay hands on people, you can release the Holy Spirit. So we're going to do that. We're going to pray a simple prayer. Then they're going to lay hands on you. And then I want you to quit asking God to give you the Holy Spirit. There's a time to ask, but then there's a time to believe that God's word is true. He said, if you give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So he promised he'd do it. Once we ask, I want you to quit asking and start thanking him that you got the Holy Spirit. I don't care what you feel like, just do it because God's word promised it. Amen. So I want you, after they lay hands on you, to just start thanking God out loud. 
that he gave you, the Holy Spirit, that I am filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm now God-possessed. Start thanking him for it. And then we're going to pray in tongues because the Bible says that when you pray in tongues, you're giving thanks. It's You're bypassing all of the doubt and the confusion that's in your brain and it's coming straight out of your heart and you're just thanking God. So we're going to start thanking God by praying in tongues. And as we start praying in tongues, I want you to quit praying in English and start praying in tongues. And I know you say, I don't know how to do it. I hadn't got more time to explain it to you, but if you're ready, you can do it right now. You can do it. The Holy Spirit is going to give you the ability to speak in tongues. And I've got a book that will explain it. If you don't understand it, you can do it later. But if you're ready, you can pray in tongues right now. That's what God's will for you is. Amen. The Bible says believers will speak with new tongues. I want you to say, I'm a believer and I will speak in tongues. (laughs) You look like, (laughs) will I really? Yes, you will. Amen. You're going to speak in tongues. Isn't that great? (laughs) You should have seen her face like I will speak in tongues. (laughs) Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father, for these that got born again. Thank you that we are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. That, Father, you promised us that you would fill us with the Holy Spirit when we ask. So we're asking. We open up the doors of our temple, and Holy Spirit, we ask you to come live on the inside of us. Fill us with your power right now. We want the power of the Holy Spirit. We want the revelation knowledge. We want the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We just welcome all of this. Holy Spirit, come and fill your temple right now in Jesus' name. We lay hands on you and we release this power of the Holy Spirit. We say receive the Holy Spirit right now. Holy Spirit, we just loose you to flow through every one of these and fill them to overflowing right now in the mighty name of Jesus. Now, I want you to start thanking God. Put your hands up like this. The Bible says that when you lift up your hands in the sanctuary, you bless the Lord. This blesses God to see you just surrender, to yield. Start thanking Him right now. Thank you, Father, that I do have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I don't care what I feel like. I trust your word. Thank you that I am filled with the Holy Spirit. Thank you for filling me with your power. Now, those of you that know how to pray in tongues, let's pray in tongues right now. Begin to start thanking God for these receiving. And as we speak in tongues, you speak with us. You can't pray in tongues in English at the same time. So quit praying in English and start speaking in tongues. If you don't know what to say, you can say what you hear the person behind you saying, but that's not your tongue. That's their tongue. Your speaking in tongues will be different than anybody else's, but you got to start making sounds. The Lord's not going to force you to speak. So start speaking. And you'll find out that it's just the Holy Spirit flowing through you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, for filling all of these. Thank you for the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit flowing in all of these right now. Those of you know how to pray in tongues, let's just pray in tongues right now. Worship the Lord. Here's the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. You don't know what you're saying, but you're bypassing the doubt. 
the confusion that's in your brain and you're praying out of this born again spirit. You're praying the hidden wisdom of God. Father, we thank you for this. Thank you for the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit flowing through all of these right now. Thank you, Jesus. Brother, you got an assurance today. It's over. Doubt, fear is over. You're going to be bold as a lion. Proverbs 28.1, the wicked flee when no man pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Boldness, confidence, strength is coming into your life that you've missed. Brother, you're a brand new person. Thank you, Jesus. We release this power to flow through all of these lives now. Thank you, Father, for touching them. We receive this in the mighty name of Jesus. Praise the Lord. Let me have your attention here for a minute. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but it's important that you understand what happened to you. Some of you may not have spoken in tongues. When I first prayed for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I didn't speak in tongues, but I was a Baptist and I had been told that it was of the devil and I just wouldn't let it happen. The Holy Spirit doesn't force you to speak in tongues. I had to get some questions answered and some things done before I could speak in tongues, but now I pray in tongues a lot. Amen. I pray in tongues more than all of you put together. And um, I got my questions answered and I guarantee you, you can still receive this. If The Lord said, if you give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? You asked, God gave you the Holy Spirit. And whether you spoke in tongues or not, you got the power of the Holy Spirit, but you need to continue... You need to continue until you speak in tongues. It's important. That's the way you start drawing this power of the Holy Spirit out. So don't quit until you speak in tongues. And I've got a book that will explain this whole thing to you and help you to receive. And so Robert is a man right here in the center aisle with his Bible up. And if you would go with him for just a moment, he'll give you a free book. They have people that will pray with you, answer questions, do whatever. But praise God, we want you to get the full benefit of what God did. So just follow Robert here for just a moment. And we want every one of you to receive the maximum benefit. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. No, I I can't answer a question right now. You just go with them. They'll answer Carly will minister to you. Praise the Lord. You know, we've got that meeting going on about the Bible college. And um, I actually was going to let the prayer ministers ministers to these so everybody could go. But I just felt like it was too important to let that happen. So if you want to go to that meeting, please go. Even though it's already started, they'll be going for about an hour total. So you could still get in on 30, 40 minutes of it. And... um, it's important. If, if you feel a desire to go to Bible college, you ought to go check it out. Amen. It'd change your life. What we've been sharing here, I share in depth in the Bible college and all of the other ministers, it's powerful. So you need to be a part of that. So don't forget that. If any of you need prayer, our prayer ministers are here to pray with you. We've been seeing some great things happen. God has been setting people free. Man, isn't it awesome to have people who love others and want to take what God has done 
and share it with you. So if you need prayer for anything, come and let one of our prayer ministers lay hands on you and we're gonna believe God for a miracle. The rest of you, you're dismissed. Don't forget that tonight we start at 6 p.m. It's not gonna be seven, it's 6 p.m. And we have CDs and DVDs already duplicated of the four services that we've had this week. And so praise God, if you're going to that CBC meeting, you need to get up there now. You have to go up the escalators, turn to your right. And it's, I think, on the right as you go to the right. God bless you. You're dismissed.